Let's turn to our Bibles to Acts chapter 17. Love this passage, love this book. I don't know about you, but uh, this has been a life-giving book and one that has given us, I think, some tremendous encouragement as a church and direction. And as you know, we see the Apostle Paul standing before a council of some of the best minds that uh, that day offered, and they were uh, listening to him give a defense for the gospel. And he addresses their idol worship, and he points them to uh, the one true God who created the world. And he presents characteristics of God, like his, his self-sufficiency, his creative power. In our section today, we see him talking about uh, the sovereignty of God and his ability to judge human beings, something that in our present religious culture, we don't like to talk about and often don't talk about. It's a striking message uh, because in, in our culture today, people don't want to touch upon this topic. There it is, and so we have to deal with it. The last time we were in Acts, we mentioned that our culture uh, has several idols that uh, they may not be the physical type, but uh, idols of our age in terms of our thinking, that somebody has to get on this bandwagon if they want to fit in. And we talked about the idol of, of tolerance, which is a weird type of tolerance, almost a, a hyper-tolerance, we call it, and a, and a sense of freedom that basically I can, I can do whatever I want, believe whatever I want without any, uh, any idea of, of discernment or truth, and uh, that is definitely a, kind of an American concept. But we also saw that this actually comes against God's created order, God's moral order. And if we're really going to embrace the idea of tolerance and freedom, it really doesn't fit outside of a Christian worldview. Because no other worldview can really prop up tolerance and make it make sense. Because only the Christian worldview gives human beings value in terms of being created in the image of God. So therefore, I have a reason to tolerate my neighbor with whatever they think or say, right? And still be kind and to love them. So I can value them. But outside of that Christian worldview, if I'm running with some naturalistic worldview, you know, that we're just oh, one species among many, what makes human beings special? Uh, why do I have to go out, of way, go out of my way to be tolerant? And so I really don't have to be in that, in that sense. So you know, everybody on their own or survival of the fittest. I think this really helps us uh, to see and, and be aware of some of these idols that we might have in our, in our culture. We're going to talk about one more before we actually dive into the passage. But uh, let's all stand as we take a look here at Acts 17. Now, we covered the first few verses in this passage, so we're going to cover the rest of it uh, today. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. 
And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as, some, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring." Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but Others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, and some men joined him and believed. Among them also were Dionysius and the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. So Lord, as we look at this passage, we are challenged. And I I think that the temptation is to think that this has little to do with us because we're never going to find ourselves in the middle of some... Um, you know, highbrow academic community giving a defense for the gospel. And yet, Lord, we know that all of us find ourselves in situations where we can, we can at least share our story, where we can just be honest about uh, how we've embraced the gospel and the change that you've made in our lives. And I pray that you'd give some courage to all of us that we, when appropriate, would, would speak such a word. And not in a gross way, inappropriate way, rude way, but in a way that Uh, that would truly shed light upon the gospel. And so help us all to be aware of that, to know how we can maybe improve uh, how we go about that. And I ask that your spirit would be our teacher and that we'd leave this place transformed, not just liking some things, but transformed. We leave it for your Holy Spirit to do that. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. You may be seated. So if Paul were to find himself in one of our academia centers today, let's say at an Ivy League school like Harvard or Princeton, and he were to converse with the leading minds of the day, I think he would quickly find that there is another idol amongst us, and that is something I might call scientism. Scientism. Notice I didn't say Science. Scientism is the idea that the only legitimate, genuine answers to reality are found in science. Dr. Joel Primack is an American astrophysicist who co-developed what's called the cold, dark matter theory, which seeks to understand the formation and structure of the universe. And when asked about the alleged rift between science and religion... In the last few years, astronomy has come together so that we're now able to tell a coherent story of how the universe came together. This story does not contradict God, but instead enlarges the idea of God. Now, I think if we're all honest, we know that Christianity has not had a really good history with science. Uh, There are pockets of people that have appreciated Science, but the fact is, is that many uh, eschew the idea of science. 
It's especially hard in a culture where science is king and Christianity is berated as some kind of pale imitation of you know, understanding the world. But the fact is, is that some of this rift is due to many Christian leaders who take the bait and they throw hard to understand parts of the Bible under the bus in favor of scientism. And then you have a a good part of Christians who don't help by thinking in purely binary ways about science and the Bible. In other words, never can the two mix. It's either one or the other. And so perhaps a little critical thinking would be helpful. And that's why I love this passage in Acts 17, because we have Paul applying some critical thinking to the matter, to the gospel, merging that with faith and, and using items from culture to present or build a bridge to the gospel. And the claim I'd like to at least deposit with you today in terms of this idol of scientism is that there can be, I think, a harmony with science and faith. The, the world, the created world that we know, has been called the second revelation of God, uh, revealing the majesty of God through creation. If God is, the Bible is the revelation about God and specific characteristics of God, then the world around us is a revelation about how big God is and some features of God's createdness. And certainly, because they come from the same author, the world and the Bible, that implies that there should be some harmony. We see the word of God and the world of God elevated to each of their rightful position in Psalm 19. Listen to this. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat." The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. So certainly we see in this that Christians can embrace and not be antagonistic to science. And Christians should certainly embrace the revelation of God in his word. And yet, we recognize this idol of scientism that shoves God out of the picture and proclaims he's just a crutch for the unsophisticated. The physical world, though, and the Bible both speak truth about God. But listen, because we live in a broken world, things are not as they should be. 
Paul wrote that, that the world groans, as it were, yearning for this thing to get fixed, but it's not. We're in the state when you know, things are messed up right now. And because of that, we can expect that people will get this wrong, interpret it wrong, because we are fallen, and we can expect that people will get the world wrong itself and come to wrong conclusions through science and wrong conclusions through the Bible. We can expect that because we live in a fallen world. That says more about human beings, though, than it does the Bible and the created world. So I see no value in denigrating either one. In his book, God's Undertaker, science writer John Lennox explains the the scope and limits of science with the following story, and I quote, let us imagine that Aunt Matilda has made a beautiful cake, and we take it along to be analyzed by a group of the world's top scientists. The nutrition scientists will tell us about the number of calories in the cake and its nutritional effect. The biochemists will inform us about the structure of proteins, fats, etc., in the cake. The physicists will be able to analyze the cake in terms of fundamental particles, and the mathematicians will no doubt offer us a set of elegant equations to describe the behavior of these particles. We have certainly been given a description of how the cake was made and how its various ingredients relate to each other. But suppose I now ask the assembled group of experts a final question. Why was the cake made? The grin on Aunt Matilda's face shows she knows the answer, for she made it for a purpose. But all the scientists in the world will not be able to answer the question. And it is no insult to their disciplines to state their incapacity to answer it. Their disciplines cannot answer the why questions connected with the purpose for which the cake was made. In fact, the only way we will ever get an answer is if Aunt Matilda reveals it to us. But if she does not disclose the answer to us, the plain fact is that no amount of scientific analysis will enlighten us. I'm here just to say that there is harmony between science and the Bible because I believe God has given us both. He's given us the world and then the science, the ability to understand that world. And he's given us the Bible. And... As Paul does here, Paul took that idol that was there in their culture and built a bridge to the gospel. So God has something to say about the idols that are erected in our culture. And if we're willing to listen, to learn, and to engage, we might be able to present our own little piece of cake, (laughs) as it were, to others to enjoy and see and understand. So he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he's actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. The Athenians took great pride in being a unique people on the earth. But Paul references that we are all descendants of one man, that one man, of course, being Adam. 
and from Adam, humans would populate the earth. Although there are many nations scattered over the face of the earth, they are one in common ancestry and relationship to their creator. Paul is dismantling the pride of the Greeks with the truth of a common creator. And he's addressing a, also a common objection from Gentiles that God is not just a God of this Jewish cult, you know, a specific Jewish cult God. He's saying that God is a sovereign Lord of all people, not just to the Greeks. And so this God is concerned for all. And it should be no surprise that that God then is, has made provision for all, specifically through the gospel. God not only places humans on the earth, but he's also sovereignly at work in managing the territory and times or seasons of nations. He says, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. Greece was not the only nation upon the earth. Don't forget, Paul was talking in Athens. The fact is, is that no nation truly controls its destiny. Uh, We might think that a stockpile of nuclear weapons controls our destiny, but no. I like what Barnhouse said, the pastor, who's now deceased, but he said this, God decides not only how long a nation stays on the map, but also how far it will reach before it is sent into decline by God. He determined how far the Roman Empire or the British Empire or Hitler's Third Reich would go before it came to an end. This is what Paul had in mind, end quote. If all this was true, then it would behoove us to listen to Paul, to seek God, since he's creator and sovereign over all human affairs. So what this means is God is not too high, not too lofty, not too glorified to not be involved with the affairs of the world. This was something that the the Greek gods could not do, that they could not fathom that there would be a God that was so holy and above us and strong and sovereign yet over human affairs. In other words, he's imminent. He's close by. We can have a relationship with this God even though he is holy lofty and and majestic and and pure and powerful, and yet we can know him personally. The Greeks were ignorant of this. And Paul's message is that they could find that God if they honestly sought him in Christ. Though they worshiped an unknown God, Jehovah God would be known to them. Paul quotes from two different poets Epimenides, who was a Cretan poet, wrote this, for in him we live and move and have our being. And then he quoted from Eratus from Cilicia, who penned the words that we are his offspring. Even though both of these quotes were originally about Zeus, Paul uses them to build a bridge to his audience. The Athenians, the fact that they existed, okay, and continued to exist, That was because of this one God whom they did not know. That's what Paul's saying to them. They could know him personally through Jesus. No such claim could ever be made by any of the scores of the false gods worshipped by the Greeks. It's as if Paul says that they're 
They're feeling around for him like a, like a blind person who's in a room and feeling around for the furniture trying to get to the other side. You may not know who this God specifically is right now. And as you're feeling around for him, you can only find him in the Son, Jesus Christ. God revealed himself in Christ so that people who seek him would find that he's both transcendent and imminent. Paul is building bridges here through these cultural poets and writers and the, the idols that are there. And he's jumping off of that and launching into presentation of the gospel. There are many aspects, or I should say, groups of Christians who askew culture throughout culture. And I think that this is a huge mistake. I'm not saying you have to love the culture. I'm saying you have to understand some things in order to relate to people. We're to to build bridges using our, our artists, our poets, and whatever else is available today. Take Khalid's song, Talk. He asks, can we just talk, wanting more of a relationship? And he claims that he'll be lost without the love of another person. Sean Mendes in If I Can't Have You says, everything means nothing without the love of a woman. There is a yearning for something more that is here in these artists. And it would make for, I think, fascinating conversation just to ask simple questions about what do you think these people are yearning for? What is it? Is it just the love of a woman? Is there another yearning, perhaps a deeper yearning that can satisfy human beings? Or just take the, the fascination with superhero movies today. It says something about how humans pine for someone close, someone in this world who can deal with evil, who can make a difference. There are, there are reasons as to why these things are so popular now, besides the entertainment value. My point is just this. Instead of shunning the culture, we'd be better off by recognizing this yearning in human hearts and build bridges, at least with those who are willing to listen. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. If man created the conception of God and created these physical representations, these idols of God, then this God is not alive. This God is not a living thing. And it's really not worth us giving our time to, but that's not the true nature of God. Paul is telling them this this penchant that you have to make God this physical thing out of stone or precious metal It's entering a new stage because the gospel is being proclaimed to you now. God would have every right in ages past. I mean, you look at the Jews, Babylonians, Assyrians, all of these cultures who worshiped idols, 
And God, being a perfect, holy God, would have had a right to judge people immediately, to banish them from the earth. See, people think that God was so harsh in the times of Noah or in times when an angel would slay hundreds of thousands of Israelites or, or, or others that were slain. The fact is, is that God is being merciful that we live because all of us have sinned and all of us deserve death. And the God of the universe is not under any obligation to have us continue to live because of our sin. It's by grace and his mercy that we can enjoy life. And because now the gospel has been given to us, these Greeks are responsible to respond to the true God. He postponed ultimate judgment, but now is giving opportunity for these people to respond to the gospel. So if the Greeks were to act responsibly, they would repent of their sins, of their prior idol worship, and bend a knee to the true God and affirm the gospel. Because Jesus entered space and time as a physical human being. He entered a grave with a real body and exited that grave with a real body three days later. These are ways that God has demonstrated the veracity of the gospel and demonstrated that Jesus has earned this position as a judge. Daniel wrote of the Son of Man, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away in his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. The fact is, is that all people must stand before Christ, who is the judge, and we will give an account for our lives. And God clearly demonstrated the truth of Christ as a judge by raising him from the dead. And, you know, the early church understood this. They gave Jesus the, the proper status of, of Lord and having judicial authority. That was something that, you know, that they didn't uh, struggle with near as much as our present culture does. And Paul even says, this should give you assurance because it's that same Jesus who's so acutely aware of sin and judging. He's the same one that has died for your sins. I mean, it's, a, it's quite a combination, is it not? He is both judge and our Savior. No one fits that bill like he does. Romans echoes this reality when it says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the nations, including you who are called to belong to Christ Jesus. Revelation 19.11 says, that this Jesus will bring judgment to the world as he rides on his white horse. 
2 Corinthians 5.10 notes that he will settle with all believers at his judgment seat. I mean, these are things that are worth sobering up about, are they not? They're worth bending a knee to this God who will hold us accountable. You may not like it. It may be something you don't hear about. You may think it's too rough. You may think it's unloving. But the most unloving thing to do is to deny that it's taking place when it's up ahead. The most unloving thing that you could do is to reject that, the fact of Jesus being the judge. You look through the Gospels and you see the way that Jesus dealt with people, the things that he said in the face of the Pharisees, overturning tables, and you'll see a Jesus who, yes, was loving, but who spoke the truth, was not afraid of the truth, and talked often of judgment. Yeah, that same Jesus. So how do we respond? Hebrews gives us a clue. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with what? With reverence and awe. For our God is a kumbaya God. Our God loves everybody and wants us just to hold hands and enjoy everything and is never going to hold us accountable. He's a consuming fire. Now that doesn't, that's not talking about hellfire. That's talking about that he will hold us accountable and that works will burn up. There will be a judgment of our works. Wood, hay, and stubble will burn. He is a God that's a consuming fire. Right? I don't see it too different than just being a parent. That as parents, you love your children, right? But I cannot, in growing up with my children, try to just be their best friend and not hold them accountable. That when they lie, not hold them accountable. That when they disobey, not hold them accountable. You know, you're going to be the tough guy or tough mom by holding them accountable. You will not be liked by doing that. But I would be derelict in my duty as a parent if I didn't. Right? So what I'm saying is you can still love and hold your kids accountable. You can do both. And hopefully they realize that that is all for their good and, and not just for the sake of, you know, being a toad or squeezing all the fun out of their life. But because we love them and we want their life to recognize the moral boundaries that God has set up in this world. And then we can enjoy a relationship as adults, having these, these same values. And that's a great blessing of parenting, is having kids who actually want to spend time with you when they're in their adult years. And you can enjoy that with one another. Now, when they heard the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius and the, the 
Areopagite, you go ahead and say that, okay? Um, and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Now, Epicureans believed that no human existed beyond death. The Stoics, and remember we talked about these two groups the last time we met. You know, the Epicureans were the eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow you die. And then the Stoics believed that reason could attain God, reason alone. They believed that only the immaterial spirit survived death, the Stoics did. So to the Greeks, a body, a material body, surviving death made no sense to them. And so many of these people at the Areopagus, they sneered at Paul when he talked about a, a physical resurrection. It lets us know that whatever ministry we're involved in, whether it's preaching the gospel or teaching a class or doing a small group, whatever ministry you choose to involve yourself in, even with you know, worship, whatever it is, the result will always be a mixed bag. Never forget that. If you're expecting everybody to like what you're doing, that's a pipe dream. If you're expecting everybody to respond positively, that's just not going to happen. Now, if many respond positively, great. But here what we see is a small group of people, two make a group, right, responded positively, and others were kind of interested, and others just said, I don't have anything to do with that. That's the response. Now, this is Paul, one of the greatest Christian thinkers of all time. Now, he certainly had his act together, his arguments being airtight, and still that didn't convince these people. The fact is, darkened hearts need the truth of the gospel and they need the Holy Spirit to enlighten them. So just don't be surprised at whatever ministry you're involved in that there are mixed results. The Areopagus was a closed body. It to belong to it was a great honor. And I can't help but think that as Luke talked about Dionysius as a, as a member and how he came to affirm the gospel, that he said it with a, a great degree of pleasure. Boy, look at how the gospel influenced this guy. What a great thing that was. But yet, it was just him and another woman, Damaris. Two people. They're never mentioned again in Acts. If you think that's insignificant, you're missing the message. The fact is, is that every person represents a family, represents friends, other relatives. And as individuals embrace the gospel, they impact those families, those friends, the employees that they work with. I mean, my salvation in the ninth grade led to my mother's conversion the same year. It was the same with my wife. Her conversion led to her mother's conversion in her 60s, and I baptized her later, I think in her late 60s. It was my one opportunity. I had her underwater, and I still <laughs> let her up. She was a good woman, and we miss her greatly. <laughs> Not from the baptism, but she died after that. <laughs> Make sure I clear that up. It reminds me of 
a great sermon, one of the best sermons I've ever heard. E.V. Hill, if you've never heard E.V. Hill preach, he's dead now. But I heard him, this was 25 years ago. And it was in Chicago. The title of his message was, When God is at His Best. And he went through these great miracles in the Bible of, you know, Moses parting the Red Sea, right? Of people being raised from the dead. And he said, was God at his best? No. And he talked about the cross and the resurrection. Was God at his best then? No. The God was at his best. And at the end of the sermon, he finally got to it. God was at his best when in Sweetwater, Alabama, he saved the life of a 12-year-old and he gave his testimony and talked about how God then used him throughout his life. And I, I sit here and I look at each of you and those of you who've come to Christ, you have a story to tell and you can say God was at his best. That was not insignificant. Are you insignificant? No. And every one of you have a great influence in this world. Turn to the person next to you and say, you are significant in the kingdom of God. God has done a great work in us. I came to Christ at a youth camp in the Adirondack Mountains in upper state New York. I was just one person. But since then, God has used me for 48 years since that day of conversion. And the fact is, my life and your life, they're not our own. One salvation is significant in the kingdom of God. And maybe when you tell your story, you can say, I came to Christ in a, in a VBS or in a small group or a friend sharing the gospel. And it's worth recounting to others because it testifies to how great God is. Never let that be mundane when you first came to love your Savior. Return to your first love. Tell your story often. Every opportunity you can get. It's your story. How can anybody argue with your story? And in that, you can give the facts of the gospel. It's worth recounting. Because you know what it testifies of? It testifies of a great and powerful God who's not just up in heaven, but who's eminent, close by, who's still working. Because you know what? He changed me. And we can all share that story. You have a story to tell to a culture yearning for hope, for meaning. So what do you say we get to building some bridges, huh? Let's pray.